for visiting us. Be welcome. It's a joy to have you with us. I want to invite you to please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And then you can keep one finger there and then turn to Ephesians 1. You're going to read both passages. Uh, Romans chapter 9. Let's read verses 6 through 18. And if you can stand, please, <laughs> would you stand? <laughs> Verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your, your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had, not done, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he he wills. Now Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. You may be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to the Lord, our Rock. What is a fortune teller? What is a fortune teller? Or a seer, S-E-E-R, or a fortune teller. What is that? According to the dictionary, a fortune teller is a person who claims to use special powers to tell what will happen to someone in the future. That's very important. The fortune teller does not claim to have power to affect the future. He only claims to have power to do what? To see the future. 
The Bible has very strong words for fortune teller, and it's fascinating as you look at our culture, how this culture is going deeper and deeper into depravity. You see how more and more people are going to the tarot cards and taking a look in their horoscopes, and as if that was naive. Well, that's just seeking more and more to be far and far from the Lord. And sadly, it's heartbreaking that so many Christians in so many churches in America, they see God, they, they understand God as a fortune teller, as one who has absolutely no power to intervene and affect the future of people, but only to see what people will do. Because man is free, and God would never intervene in man's free will. So sadly, many Christians pervert the doctrine of election and predestination, and no longer we have predestination, but we have what? Post-determination or post-destination. As if God, He's not powerful enough to do anything, so He's just looking to the future and say, Oh, since Ethan will choose me, therefore I will call him an elected one. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is never painted as a fortune teller who simply sees the future. The Bible shows that election and predestination are the works of a sovereign God who chooses unconditionally someone to salvation and injustice and righteousness leave others to their own condemnation. And those whom He chooses for salvation, it's all according to the counsel of His will and for the praise of His glorious grace. And I would say, praise be to God that He did not let election to be in our hands. If choosing God was on our hands, that would be a nightmare. Nobody would be saved. Just look at our country. What happens when man <laughs> takes the freedom to vote for something? I love what Spurgeon said. He, he said, I'm sure it is true. In my case, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And then he says, And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I'm forced to accept the great biblical doctrine of unconditional election. Amen. And that, I believe, is the testimony of the great majority of us here. <laughs> and so my prayer is as we continue and we come to this final sermon on unconditional election my prayer is that this doctrine will humble us that this doctrine, this teaching will just enlarge our hearts to love the Lord more and the praises to Him who saved us will be just flowing from our hearts and mouths with a lot of joy Amen uh, for those who are visiting us, we, we have been doing a series on who we are as a church. A local church, our name is Salem Reformed Baptist Church. And what does it mean to be Reformed and Baptist? What, is, what does it mean to be Reformed Baptist? So we are walking now 
to the major teachings that unite us as a church? What are the doctrines that hold us together in this local church? The Bible is clear that for us to walk together, we need to have a unity of conviction. Because it would be chaos if we have no unit of conviction. So what are the main teachings that we believe in the Bible that hold us together as a local church? And we are walking through the first aspect of the Reformed. We're going to come to the Baptist later. And we saw how the Reformed teaching is nothing but going back to the Bible. The heart of the Reformation was to bring the Bible back to the pulpit. That's why we call ourselves Reformed, because we are going back to the Reformation. And the Reformation was just reclaiming the Word of God, placing the Bible where the Bible is supposed to be. And we saw how as the Reformation took place, we had the five solas. And with the five solas, we have the five points of the doctrines of grace. So we start walking and we walk through the first one, and that is total depravity. You remember you walk through total depravity, and that's the first point that we must understand. That's where man plays his role in this game of salvation. And we just bring sin into the game. We bring a corpse. And we need a God who is not only powerful, but who is willing and merciful. So the doctrine of total depravity is the biblical teaching that sin has completely infected and affected us in such a way that there is no part in us, as Paul tells in Romans, from head to toe, there is nothing that has not been contaminated by sin. How about the will? The heart is contaminated. The will is inseparable from your heart. The will is also affected by sin. So we saw that the only solution is a God who is powerful and merciful to save us. So we move to the doctrine of unconditional election. That God is merciful. And in His mercy, He has chosen some to be saved. So... Here's the outline. We're going to continue the outline this morning. And we're going to come to unconditional election in the New Testament. And then we're going to be looking at unconditional election applied. So we're going to finish this series on unconditional election. And I need to say that the doctrine of unconditional election, uh, limited atonement, as you're going to see next time, those are the most glorious doctrines in the whole Bible. For a preacher, there is no greater joy than to preach these doctrines because God is fully, completely exalted and man is deeply humiliated and humbled. And that's how must be God's drum of redemption. He's always on the spotlight. God alone receives the glory. So, we saw, just to review briefly, we saw the, the doctrine of unconditional election as defined is that God in His mercy... In His mercy and nothing good in us, there was nothing that God saw in us that was kind of helpful. But He saw only depravity, rebellion, and yet in His mercy, He chose some to be saved. So, you'd say that God chose a vast multitude of specific individuals whom He would save from their sin and eternal punishment. Before time began, God selected from fallen, perishing humanity, those whom He would rescue from His wrath. And we'd say that this election was not based upon merit, 
of the one chosen, but solely on the unmerited grace of God in Christ. For reasons known only to God, he chose whom he would save and predestined their salvation, making it irrevocable and certain. That's just a basic definition of unconditional election. And then we moved to, okay, that's kind of systematic theology. Now let's move to the biblical theology, how that's confirmed and, and proved through the teaching of the scriptures. And honestly, the whole Bible, the story of the Bible is the story of a God, of a triune God who unconditionally chooses a people to dwell in His presence. The story of the Bible is the story of a God who is righteous, holy, and yet merciful. And He chooses a people to dwell in His presence. An undeserving people. Ah. And you think about the whole aspect as we were looking at before the last Sunday, the whole aspect of unconditional election. That's the foundation of the whole Old Testament. So much of the doctrine of the land, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, they're all connected to the election of His people. You see how vital this is. The whole covenantal backbone of the Bible, you think about the covenants and how the covenants is the backbone of the Bible story. All those covenants declare a God who is merciful and who chooses whoever He wants. So we look through Genesis, so we saw how right in the beginning, God alone, in His sovereignty, He chooses one line of Eve, and He does not choose the other line. He chooses the line of Seth. And then He chooses Noah. He chooses Abraham. He chooses the patriarch. It's not like these guys were godly and holy. They're idol worship. And yet God has mercy on them. And then God chose Moses. And then God chooses Israel as a nation. And then He chooses David. And we saw Jeremiah and so many other aspects in the Old Testament where it's just publicly declaring this doctrine of unconditional election. God chooses whoever He wants. And nobody deserves to be called. And then we move to the New Testament. Last Lord's Day, we start looking at the New Testament and we stop in Paul. And how the Apostle Paul is the poster child of unconditional election. Let me ask you, was Paul choosing Jesus? Was Paul seeking Jesus? You're seeking to arrest Christians. There's nothing in eager to choose Jesus. That's what you mean by unconditional election. There's nothing in Saul that God looked and said, Wow, look at him. What a godly man. I'm going to choose him. Actually, he was a persecutor, a blasphemer, he says. And God, in His mercy... Chose him to be a vessel, a vessel of grace and an instrument of proclamation of the gospel. So we start looking at Paul. We look at First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, and now let's move to Romans. Romans, and especially chapter nine. Romans eight through eleven. If if you're thinking about Romans eight through eleven, that's the Mount Everest of the doctrine of unconditional election. Paul is climbing. Throughout Romans, and he reached the top right there. Romans 8 through 11 is so much, so much of the doctrine of predestination, unconditional election, starting chapter 8. And then Christians would be thinking, and the Christians who are coming out of the Jewish background, and they are in the church in Rome, and yes, Paul, those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, 
He justified those who He justified. He glorified. But how about the Jewish people? That's the question of chapter 9. Chapter 8 is Paul saying that those whom God called, He will glorify. But how about the nation of Israel? They were called. They were called. So Paul is answering this question now in chapter 9 of Romans. And he answers that question by telling the whole story of Israel. It's a summary of Israel's story where he shows that the true Israel was always those who were unconditionally chosen by God. Having thus an ethnic Israel and a theological Israel. So Paul says, for example, verses 10 to 13, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's the hardest text for those who do not hold. I remember in my days when I did not believe in this doctrine. This is the hardest text. What do you do with that? It's just so clear. Paul shows that God does not choose good people. We have Jacob and Esau. Jacob, before being saved, he was a horrible man. Horrible man. It's not that God is choosing the good ones and leaving the bad ones. It's not that God is choosing the less bad ones. It's all evil. And we should not be scandalized that God hated Esau. That's what happens with Christians. Christians get scandalized. God hated Esau. The shock should be that God loved Jacob. When you understand the depravity of sin and how sin is heinous before a holy God, it's amazing, it's so dropping that God would love anyone. That's what you should be amazed by. Not scandalized that he hated Esau. By his holy, righteous character, he should just remain in hate of sin. And yet, he has mercy. So Paul knows that people will question the justice of God. Oh, but that's unjust. How can God do that? So Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And mercy and grace, by definition, nobody deserves. By definition, you do not deserve that. And that's what he's showing, that God is a God who is in charge. He's Yahweh. He's the sovereign one. And he shows mercy to whomever he wants to show mercy. So he says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So you look at verses 11 and 16, and Paul is very clear that God's election has nothing to do with man's free will or man's actions. Look at how Paul says, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So Frank Seelman is very right when he says, Nothing, nothing that originates from the human side, whether desire or effort, influences God's decision to show mercy to some and not others. Nothing us. That's why all glory be to Him. All glory be to God. As soon as we think that there was something good in us, there was something in us that accomplished that, we are robbing God of His glory. 
So to finish here, I, I just say amen to Spurgeon's words. He says, it would also be unnecessary to repeat the whole chapter 9 of Romans. As long as that remains in the Bible, no man shall be able to prove Arminianism. So long as that is written there, not the most violent contortions of the passage, of the passage will, be, will ever be able to exterminate the doctrine of election from the Scriptures. <laughs> and I will skip to Ephesians. Let's jump to Ephesians. We could go to Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, but let's jump to Ephesians. And it's amazing how Paul opens the letter to the Ephesians, right in the beginning of the letter, with the glorious, comforting doctrine of predestination and unconditional election. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Look at how He predestined us. In love. In love He predestines for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His own will. So Paul gives us an astounding catalog of blessings that we are supposed to praise the Lord for. And the first item in that catalog is your election, your predestination. So Paul's structure here is very simple. The source of election, God Himself. God alone. God chose us. The sphere of election in Christ. The object of election, us, individual Christians. The time of election before the foundation of the world. The basis of election, His pleasure and will. And the ultimate consequence of election, to the praise of His glorious grace. And it's amazing that He predestined us to be adopted. What do you do with a, an adopted child? Do you live in the orphanage? You bring home. You bring home to dwell with you. That's the theme of the scriptures, dwelling with God. So the whole story of redemption, God choosing some to bring them into His glorious, covenantal, loving presence to enjoy Him forever. So, it's beautiful how Paul says that God the, God the Father chose us in love and in the Beloved. It's beautiful. He predestined us in love and He chose us in the loved one. That's similar to how Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7 said that God chose Israel because He loved Israel. Why did you love Israel? Because I chose to love Israel. There's absolutely nothing attractive on them. And I chose to love them. Similar to what we see here, out of love. So this statement then gives an endearing picture of God as one who has chosen people to be in relationship with Himself, contemplating this out of a heart of love. And that runs completely contrary to the picture that I used to have of God as this cruel, barbaric God who chooses some. The Bible paints a different picture. It's a loving, gracious, merciful God. Alright, let's jump to First Peter. We need to move fast here. We have so much to cover. First Peter, once again, beautiful, beautiful how Peter opens, opens the letter to those persecuted Christians, those Christians who are suffering with the doctrine of election and predestination. So Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, those who are what? 
the chosen, the elect ones, the elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Ah, you see, he foreknew. Amen, he foreknew. What is to know, according to the biblical teaching? To love. Adam knew his wife, and they conceived a son. A covenantal love. Intimate. Jesus will say, I never knew you. Jesus knows everything, but he never had a covenantal relationship with those people. So what you foreknow is to love before. It's to set apart for a covenantal relationship. And then Peter also speaks of the majesty of God in not only election, but reprobation. He says, they stumble because they disobey the word. And look at that. As they were destined to do it. God? God would do that? Yes, He's God. He's holy, righteous. His ways are not our ways. So they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Destined by whom? Satan is in charge of the universe now? They are in charge of the universe? God is in charge. But you, look at that, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Peter divides the human race in two races. The chosen and the not chosen. It has nothing to do with ethnicity, country, color of skin, social status. You have the chosen race that is defined by God's unconditional saving grace. How about Revelation? So we move from Genesis to Revelation. We start in Genesis last Sunday and today we finish in Revelation. Revelation, same thing. Just the, the choir keeps repeating the same song. God's sovereign election. So, Revelation chapter 13, we read about that everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. Who wrote those names there? Did you write your name in the book of life before the foundation of the world? God wrote those names there. In Revelation 3.5, if you're taking notes, Revelation 3.5, also you hear about the book of life. In Revelation 17, 4, 14, Revelation 17, 14, we hear about the ten horns waging war against the Lord. and says, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and kings of kings. Look at that. And those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Thomas Reiner, he helps us here. He says, they are those who are called, elect, and faithful. The first two descriptions emphasize the sovereign grace of God. The saints cannot take credit for belonging to the Lamb, for they have been called by God's grace. The calling here is effectual. It's a calling that inducts them into the kingdom. And he says, in the same way, in the same way the saints are elected and chosen by God, and thus are the recipients of His marvelous mercy and grace. The saints do not belong to God ultimately because of their own decision and choice, but because of God's electing grace. There's just so much, but here we see just a glimpse of from Genesis to Revelation. How just keeps repeating this marvelous theme of unconditional election. And you might say, great, 
But how about Jesus? Did Jesus teach that? Or just Calvin? Or just the Reformers? Or just Paul? I like the red letters in the Bible. I have those who like the red letters. As if the red letters were more inspired than the rest of the Scriptures. And they're not. But of course, the, the words of the living and incarnate God have a lot of weight. So let's see what Jesus said. Okay, so let's see Jesus in the doctrine of unconditional election. We see his unconditional election when he chooses the disciples. So, for example, Mark chapter 1 says that passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon, Simon and Andrew. As he's passing by, and the same thing he said of Levi, as he passed by, he saw Levi. And the idea here, that the picture is, is, it so happens. It so happened that Jesus was passing there, and suddenly he saw Andrew and Simon and Levi. As if he had not planned that in eternity past. No, that's not what took place. It's ironic because it's teasing us. As if there was anything that was by chance or accident with Jesus. No, he knows that Andrew and Simon are, are his sheep. They belong to him. And he purposefully walks by that place because he needs to call them. The same with Levi. Think about Levi. Filthy, tax collector. He was not seeking Jesus. He was seeking money. And Jesus comes and chooses him. And even Judas. Judas was sovereignly chosen by Christ to be the instrument of his crucifixion. Remember that predestination has two sides. Unconditional election and reprobation. God is sovereign over both. Not only that, but God has graciously, graciously chosen some. So in Matthew 22, 14, as he's wrapping up the parable of the wedding banquet, and remember, there's the invitation, the invitation, people refusing to come. Jesus says, for many are invited, many are called. And here the call is not the effectual calling, but it's the external call, the invitation. But few are chosen. And that refers to the whole nation of Israel under the Old Covenant, where they had this massive call, and yet few were the chosen ones. And once again, we should not be scandalized that God chose only a few, but that God would indeed choose any. any. Another teaching of Jesus on unconditional election in Luke chapter 10. The disciples are coming back to Jesus. They are all so joyful of the conquests. They preach the gospel and they cast out demons. There was healing. So they come to Jesus all excited and Jesus basically tells them, do not rejoice about that. Rejoice in this, that your names, your names are written in heaven. Let me ask you, did the disciples climb up heaven and wrote their names there? No, God wrote their names there. And then Jesus is full of joy. At the same time, in the same time, same hour, he Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise. He rejoices in God's reprobation. I rejoice that you have hidden these things from the wise. Hmm. Oh, Jesus, that's so unloving. As if we are more loving than the one who is all love. And reveal them to the little ones. 
So you see how Jesus commands us to rejoice in the doctrine of unconditional election. Let's move on. Here we come to John chapter 10. Here's John chapter 10, a marvelous statement that Jesus is the long-expected Davidic king, the shepherd that they were expecting from the line of David. And Jesus says in verses 14 through 16, I am the good shepherd. I am the long-expected shepherd of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. I know my own. Look at the no. I know my own. What is this knowing here? Covenantal, loving relationship. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for whom? You see, it's a definite article. For this sheep, his sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. And one shepherd. Jesus clearly states that he has his sheep. Throughout the Gospel of John, this group, this flock is called the, the ones that the Father gave to Jesus. The gift of the Father to the Son. And look at verse 16. I have other chosen sheep that are not in this fold here. And let me tell you that he's talking to the religious leaders of Israel and he's calling them goats. You do not belong to me. And I actually have other sheep that are in Gentile territory. And the time is coming when they're going to come to my fold. And then he says, verse 25 through 27, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The words that I do, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And listen to this. But you do not believe. Why? Why? You do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. You see, we perverted this statement. Jesus says that only, the only ones who believe are those who belong to him. You don't believe to belong. You belong to believe. That's Jesus' teaching. Jesus says that He knows His sheep. That's covenantal language. And the Bible says that we all, like sheep, have gone astray, each one to his own way. And yet the Good Shepherd, in His mercy, He did not need you. There was no obligation on Him to come and rescue some sheep. And that's what He does. Also in John, John chapter 15... You see Jesus' sovereign choice. You did not choose me, but what? But what? I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And it's important to notice that Judas has already left the group here. That's John 15, John 13. Judas left the group. So this choosing here is the choosing for eternal life. And then he says, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You see, once again, there are two kinds of people. Human race divided by two. The ones who belong to the world and those who are chosen by Jesus out of the world. And last, the last one here in Jesus' teachings. 
chapter 17 of John. Jesus is the perfect high priest. And just like the high priest in the Old Covenant, he had one specific group of people for whom he was mediating. The high priest was not mediating for the Babylonians and, and the Parasites and the Canaanites. He was, he was the mediator of a very specific group of people. So is Jesus also. So he says, I'm not praying for the world. Verse 9. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me out of the world, for they are yours. So that just messes up the whole game of for God so loved the world. Right? So then you start noticing that the world has very different meanings. It's not just one meaning. Because he's just saying, I'm not praying for the world. Hmm. Now he has one group of people for whom he's interceding and he's going to die for. So Jesus, he joins his voice and declares this glorious, marvelous doctrine from condition of action. From Genesis to Revelation, and you can go to the God-man Jesus and just see how much he talks about this glorious teaching. So to finish, I just want to bring to the last part of the sermon, that is the unconditional election applied into our lives. How shall we apply this doctrine? There's just so many practical aspects I had to restrain myself here. So the first one is unconditional election leads to high praises. The more we understand this doctrine, the higher is our worship. So Paul opens the letter to the Ephesians by calling the church to praise God, to bless His name, and the first reason that he gives is God's unconditional election. His predestination of us. Jesus tells His disciples to rejoice not primarily on ministerial success, but on the fact that God has chosen us to be saved. We start seeing how throughout the Scriptures we saw how in Psalms the doctrine of unconditional election is used to empower God's people to sing His glory. So nowhere in Scripture the doctrine of unconditional election incite anger or debate. Just the opposite. Creates praise. Remember Psalm 65 verse 4? Blessed, happy is the one whom you choose. And bring him near to your presence. Of all people, Christians are to be the happiest. And our praises are to be the loudest. With so much joy for God who saved us and had mercy on us. So remember, the doctrine of unconditional election should never be a source of anger, bitterness, and frustration. For the Christian, it's always a source of profound joy. Another one. Unconditional election leads to sanctification. And that's just to destroy the whole world. If I'm chosen, I'll be saved no matter what. No. The Bible is very clear. The unconditional election is inseparable from a life of holiness. Paul says in Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To what? To be conformed. To be conformed to the image of His Son. What is that? But to grow into Christ's likeness. 
Ephesians 1.4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? Holy and blameless before Him. He chose us to be holy and blameless. The doctrine of unconditional election must lead to a life of sanctification. How do I know? How do I know if I'm chosen? I have heard people say, oh, How do I know? Are you growing holiness? Are you changing? Can people look at your life and see a life that's changing? If you're growing to Christ's likeness, that's the greatest evidence that you have been chosen. I mean, you just don't know my past. I don't care. I really don't care. And stop with the drama. Are you growing to holiness? Are you growing to holiness? Are you becoming more like Christ? When people look at you the past year, can they say, may I see you grow into Christ's likeness? Spurgeon said, going here, Oh, beloved, never think you are elect unless you are holy. If you are walking the fear of God, trying to please Him and to obey His commands, Doubt not that your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. Jesus said, I chose you to bear fruit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul says, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. How? Through sanctification. Election, predestination always, always leads to sanctification. And that has been the testimony of my life and the life of many of you. Once you understood God's power, God's grace, and God's mercy, you understood how much you owe Him. The doctrines of grace create a life of holiness. Another one. The doctrine of unconditional election leads to evangelism. There is absolutely no frozen chosen when it comes to the doctrine of election. That's just ridiculous. The greatest missionaries, the greatest evangelists, they were all, all men who love and treasure the doctrines of grace. Paul says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the land. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Jesus said that he has other sheep. Implying that we must go and preach the gospel to bring his sheep into his fold. So the doctrine of unconditional election motivates the church to keep preaching because we know that that's God's means to save his elect. The elect will come by the means that God has appointed and God appointed the means of the preaching of the gospel. That's why we preach. That's why we, we support missionaries. That's why we support evangelism. That's why one the lost should come because that's the way that God saves His chosen ones. Amen? One more. Unconditional action leads to humility. It breaks us. The doctrine of total depravity with the unconditional action are the most ego-crushing ego doctrines that we have. There is no other teaching that's so pride-destroying than this doctrine. You did nothing to contribute to your salvation. God did all. 
Paul used the doctrine of unconditional election to humble the prideful Christians in the church of Corinth. There was absolutely nothing lovely, good, or meritorious in us that was deserving of God's choice. Like the rest of mankind, we were rotten, dead, rebels, and God had mercy on us. And that should just destroy all the pride. Spurgeon, he says, I know nothing, nothing again that's more humbling for us than this doctrine of election. And then he says, I have sometimes fallen prostrate before it when endeavoring to understand this doctrine. I have stretched my wings and eagle-like I have soared towards the sun. Steady has been my eye and through my wing for a season. But when I came near it, and the one thought possessed me, God has from the beginning chosen you unto salvation. I was lost in its luster. I was staggered with the mighty thought, and from the dizzy elevation down came my soul prostrate and broken, saying, Lord, I'm nothing. I'm less than nothing. Why me? Why me? Friends, if you want to be humble, study election. For it will make you humble under the influence of God's Spirit. He who is proud of his election is not elect. And he who is humble under a, under a sense of it may believe that he is. Amen. And the last one. The doctrine of unconditional election in the Scriptures are always a source of comfort and joy. God comforts his people as they came back from exile with the words in Malachi. Does, does God love us? Because what's going on here? And in Malachi chapter 1, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. In order to comfort them, I'm for you. I'm with you. Peter, Paul, they opened their letters to churches that were being persecuted under suffering with the doctrine of unconditional election. So Peter, look at how he comforts them. He tells them that you are the chosen ones, the elect exile. And that's beautiful. Because the reason that they are exiles in this world, the reason why they are being persecuted in this world is because why? Because God has chosen them. The doctrine of sovereign and unconditional election should, be, should never be a source of embarrassment, anger, doubt about God's character, but a doctrine of deep comfort, immense joy and delight. Brian Chappell, he says, Predestination was never meant to be a doctrinal club used to batter people into acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Rather, the message of God's love preceding our accomplishments and outlasting our failures was meant to give us a profound sense of confidence and security in God's love so that we will not despair in situations of great difficulty, pain, and shame. And I highly encourage you all to read the biography of George Mueller. I know how many of you know George Mueller. He's well known for his evangelism and the orphanage that he built. All the children that he used to take care. Uh, Piper has a wonderful biography. Uh, there are other biographies on George Miller. I, I, I recommend because he's very, very clear about how the doctrines of grace impacted his life. He used to hate the doctrines of election, especially. Unconditional election. He hated the doctrine. And then he says, 
when the Lord opened his eyes to see the beauty of this doctrine, he says, Thus I say, the electing love of God in Christ has often been the means of producing holiness instead of leading me into sin. And how much of his work and his sacrifice to the Lord became the fruit of understanding God's undeserving mercy and grace upon his life. And the testimony of George's, George Miller is the testimony of so many of us. Once we realize how precious, how lovely this doctrine is, that God would choose us and love us when we deserve hell, changed our lives. It has impacted my life in so many areas. Movies that I watch, music that I listen to, my finances, my life has been completely affected by the understanding of God's marvelous, undeserving grace and mercy upon me. Praise the Lord for His unconditional election. Amen. And as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper, it's important to remember that this table is a table of mercy. The Lord's table is a place where we sit together, we behold our gracious Lord, and we look at each other in amazement that God would have mercy on us. We are reminded that there was a time in our lives when we were sitting with demons, we were having a banquet with the world, and because God had mercy on us, now we sit together at His holy table and enjoy fellowship with the God of life. Amen. Well, let us pray. Father, we, we come before You with humble hearts, joyful hearts, and we give You all the glory, all the praise. To You belong all the honor. You are a God who is indeed rich, rich in patience, loving kindness, and mercy. And we thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that these teachings, Lord, that the teaching of the doctrine of unconditional action would change us. That people come to this church and see a church that's literally humiliated by your grace. Humble people, joyful people, people who are eager to proclaim the good news. So help us, Lord. Pray for your Holy Spirit to be using this word to change us. And as we prepare to partake of the table of the Lord, I pray your blessing. Help us to find immense joy in this wonderful ordinance that we can just, through acts, through actions of taking the bread and drinking the cup, proclaim that it's all by your grace. It's all by your mercy. So please, I pray your blessing from this time. In Jesus' name.